note to listeners, due to a scheduling snafu, this interview starts off with both me and Gabby, and then Gabby disappears. (laughs) (laughs) And then I go conduct another interview by myself until Allison shows up at the end. So these next two weeks... What a ride we're on. What a ride. But you know what? We made it work and we got the content. And here's your content, people. Here's your content. What does Bo Burnham say? I made you your content. <laughs> Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and officially on summer vacation from grad school. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and mediocre at TikTok. Tell me more. No, that's it. I don't know what it's supposed to be for anymore, so I'm over it. But what, what, uh, you're done with grad school for the summer? I get August off, which is very thrilling for me. Um, what are you going to do? I'm going to New York for a week. And mostly I'm just not going to have to sit on Zoom for hours every few, every a few days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I guess the Delta variants screwing everything up. But was there a time where you were going to have to go back to grad school in person? Yeah, the plan is to go back for the next quarter, both for Pepperdine, where I go as a student, and for USC, where I go as a teacher. So oh. as of right now, both campuses are planning on doing in-person um, in September. So we shall see. Well, uh, good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one. See you later. <laughs> hope, hope that works out for you. Do you think that you would be a better teacher in person? I would hope so. Because it's hard over Zoom, right? Yeah, it's really hard. Well, I've been on break from from teaching for a while now because USC has like a true three-month summer versus Pepperdine where it's like one one month. But yeah, I mean, I would hope. I mean, also just like as a student, it's like nobody in my classes talk. So the really? professor will just be like, ask a question and no one will reply. And then it's like, I, I could reply, but I'm like, I don't want to be the person answering every question. <laughs> So then nobody says anything? A lot of the time that happens, yeah. It's really uncomfortable. And does she, can she call on someone? He doesn't do that, no. I mean, I was in person for such little time. I was only in person for maybe like like two and a half months. Right. Um, and so I'm hoping that like it'll be a little more dynamic when we go back in person. But even like in person, I mean, people just don't talk. And it's like it, it really like makes the class like worse. <laughs> Because do you think people are just scared to say the wrong thing? Yeah, or they don't know what to... I mean, sometimes he'll ask a question. I'll be like, I have no idea. But (laughs) other times I'll be like, oh, I have something to say, but I've already said too much in this class. Well, I think like in high school, it feels like, okay, like I'll speak up in the class or whatever. But maybe in like grad school, people just don't know if they should. Or like we've built in, we've got some sort of like new adult social anxiety that like we didn't have in high school I don't know I mean when I was teaching too it was like no one would I we would ask things and no one would reply so it's <laughs> it's really I'm awkward. just imagining this it's so <laughs> awkward it's so awkward but the thing about the zoom situation is like you know it's it's in a way 
less awkward because it's like everyone's in their own room. So like maybe people don't feel the pressure as much to be the one to talk. Yeah. So I'm hoping like in person we'll all like make eye contact and be like, <laughs> hey, maybe you, you could say something. It's <laughs> so awkward. Wow. Well, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal, brutal honesty. Oh, no. I know. It's rough. Also, just like I'm really worried about the type of people that seem to want to be therapists. <laughs> uh, but that's a whole nother topic for another day. <laughs> you, you're like seeing them as, the, as their real selves and you're like, I can't believe this person is going to be someone's therapist. I have some concerns about worldviews. Oh, no. I have some concerns about worldviews. I have some concerns about um, like vibes <laughs> I um well okay well because you think that they uh would not be a very good therapist I mean look in terms of like personality like who am I to say but I think in terms of like world views like therapy is social justice and if you mm -hmm. don't have you know like progressive leanings and a progressive view of the world like it's this isn't really the right this like if you don't think that people are oppressed you yeah. shouldn't be a therapist yeah <laughs> like wow. you know like there's some stuff where i'm like you know like oh you don't you're not a feminist oh okay don't please don't be a therapist <laughs> <laughs> I, or be a therapist for a very specific subset of person i guess well no because then you would never be able to acknowledge sex right. that sexism ex exists right. in a way do you know like you have yeah. like so much of it is is like also doing social justice stuff mm -hmm. and like if you don't even like believe in social justice that's like a very weird way to be entering the therapeutic helping field <laughs> i want a shirt that says i'm concerned about vibes <laughs> just a mug that's like i have was it like i have some concerns about vibes i have i'm concerned about dot 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 vibes <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow well uh, that's very uplifting um this week we're gonna be asking oleami aloran some tough questions about being a public defender and later we'll be discussing benifer and the obsession with celebrity relationships but before we can get to all of that it's time to answer a listener's question hit it international question international question international question alma austria she her and i love that name almost such a cute name it really is and i've been to austria so <laughs> pretty cool <laughs> oh no i'm in a silly mood all right <laughs> TLDR, how do you maintain a good relationship with your own creative process in the age of Instagram and the pressure to go viral? Oh, no. Oh, no. I wish I knew. Here we go. Dear Allison and Gabby, mm -hmm. I've always wondered which question I'll ask you. Now the day has come. Wow. I'm a 22-year-old student, almost finished with my bachelor in theories of film, theater, and media. I've always dreamt of becoming an artist, directing, making music, designing fashion, writing a book, and jumped from one creative passion to another, and always have a thousand ideas at once. Cool. It is difficult for me to stay consistent and focus on only one project. I suffer from self-doubt and enormous pressure to be successful, a wish to become famous, and I guess be special. 
and therapy to work on this. Sure. Apart from that, it just seems like a wonderful way to spend your life, creating and working with other creative minds. These days, I find myself scrolling through Instagram and watching other people's art, which pressures me as I feel I am nowhere with my career. Right now, I'm really confused how to go forward. A part of me wants to conquer Instagram, learn about the algorithm and get a following to have something to be proud of, find a community. But then I get disappointed easily about only having 60 followers and expect to grow overnight and have the urge to just quit. I wonder if I should just take myself out of this race as I am not enjoying it most of the time. Also, the goal shouldn't be to make art for Instagram, YouTube, but what do you do with the wish to be seen? So I wonder, how do you maintain a good relationship with your own creative process in the age of Instagram pressure to go viral? Do I even need to be on there? I'm a big all or nothing person. The thought to quit, quit art and do something else, studying psychology and the sudden urge to create, go to art school are ripping me apart. It would be really nice to make a decision or to have another outlook because this is exhausting. But also quitting would be like giving up before even starting. How do you know when to push through all the self-doubt and pursue the dream to be an artist? And when does it become toxic and would be better to change career plans and see it as a hobby? I would love to hear your thoughts on this as I don't have people in my life who can relate or in an artistic field. A big thank you for your consistent vulnerability, brutal honesty, and thoughtful advice. I have so much respect and love for you and wish you all the best. Have you been like listening in on my therapy sessions? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's the thing. Social media is bad. I don't agree with you on that, but that's something we disagree about. But okay. Going viral is a a double-edged sword because – Going viral is not something that you can control. So, like, if you go viral for something good, it's all I, – I've seen that happen maybe three times. But if you go viral for something bad and everybody is, like, dunking on you and, like, knows who you are for a bad reason, like, that happen. I see that happen, like, way more. And I think the idea of going viral is is seen as – positive in a way that it no longer is it's hard because I I you're right about not creating for Instagram or for YouTube specifically right like I think it's all gotten so warped and like if you're if it doesn't make you feel good don't do it like I've been so I went off Twitter and I have been considering like be not you know being on Instagram as much because I realized that once I left Twitter I had so much more time to actually write. I had so much more time to actually do my work. Like, I feel like doing the art is its own thing. And then going on Instagram to promote the art or to put up stuff from the art is secondary. Like, you have to be doing the stuff in order to then promote it on Instagram and not the other way around. I feel like starting from the place of Instagram is is like the wrong move because I wasn't making anything worth posting about when I was just worried about posting. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like my creative process, like I have, I mean, I picked this question because this is something I I have been grappling with a lot where I feel like I am out of content <laughs> that I feel like, you know, I, I'm very aware that I came up on the internet. Um, I, The reason that I've had the career success that I've had is because of a large part because I was able to build a following online. And I think that there is a lot of, of power in that, Um, you know, having gone to like a, tr- 
to film school and tried to go the traditional route as being a screenwriter and that like nothing happening for me until I had a YouTube channel, you know, mm-hmm. like I think that that it makes a lot of sense that you that you do put time and thought into the social media of it all. Um, but I, you know, for me, I'm like reaching this point where like, I'm, you know, I see people being so creative all of the time, especially on TikTok and see people's tweets do so well all of the time. And I'm, and I'm constantly like, I don't have anything left to say. <laughs> That's the problem. If you get off, if you get off of that stuff, if you, if you stop, like comparing or going, you know, into that stuff. But there's which, also like, the reality of the fact that like I have a book coming out next year and I have to maintain my I have to maintain my fan base. I have to maintain my visibility so that stuff does do well. But you have to work backwards from that. You have to have like the book and then you have to like work backwards from the book to promote the book. Like you you going on TikTok or going on 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 Twitter and saying, oh, well, compared to these people, I don't have any ideas left is bullshit. You absolutely have ideas left. Like you're just like go. You're just like going on these things and thinking, oh, well, that person did it better. So why bother? Or that person like that says I I don't think I think you're putting words in my mouth, but you're not. But you do have ideas. Well, not really, though. Like I, you know, I'm trying to do more TikToks and I don't have ideas. Like I, (laughs) I think about this like all day, every day. Like this has been a thing that I've been dealing with where like, I just don't have, I, you know, like we used to make a sketch a week and like we used to put up two videos a week. And like, I, I am in this place where I feel really drained and like, I feel like I don't have ideas and I don't have ideas for TikTok videos. And it, and it is like distressing to me. And like, that's my truth. But then why do it? Why not just get rid of all of that stuff for now and like sit down and focus on like doing something that is that is real? Because that's also my business. So I can't just abandon the social element. Like I don't have as many projects going on as you do right now. Like I don't have my next thing. And so I have to maintain this fan base in order for me to continue my career. And I think when you when you treat me like that, that's not true. And that's not a reality of life like that. I feel very unheard. And I feel like like it's hard for me to talk to you. But I've only lost things from like like Twitter specifically. I've lost things from Twitter. Like the only like the last few times that like something went viral of mine on Twitter, I lost money. I lost projects. So like me sitting down and then not being on Twitter, I sat down and wrote a whole screenplay from not from not having not being on Twitter, not caring what's going on on Twitter, not like. And so to me, it's the opposite where it's like, well, now I have this screenplay and like that's a real thing that like I I feel like if you if you think you don't have ideas, you do. You always say this thing about how you don't have ideas. And like you are a, definitely a creative person. Like you have tons of things to mind. You have tons of ideas. But like I view online content as content. And so I like I need ideas for videos and I don't have them. Like when I tell you that and then you say that's not true, like you're just not listening to me. Like the reality is that like every single day I try to think of an idea for a TikTok video and I can't. (laughs) So like that is my reality. (laughs) But I see you as as a very creative person with a lot of unique stuff to mine. But you always say stuff like I'm boring and like I just don't think that's true. 
I don't think that I'm boring, but I think that I've already mined a lot of things. I've already written a lot of things in my life. I've already, you know, and like I have a weekly blog for my Patreon. Like it is hard for me to think of a topic every fucking week to talk about on my blog. Like I have to post five days a week on Emotional Support Lady. It is hard for me to think of content to put on that, you know, Mm -hmm. like I do feel depleted. I do feel like I don't have much more to say or add to the conversation and that's been like it that's been a personal issue and battle that I've been dealing with I am I am sorry about that I just like I am I just I just see you as creative and interesting and like the idea that you're like well I've mined my whole life doesn't like compute for me because you are so strange and interesting and like this has been a thing since like the beginning where you're you just are like not you you're not aware of what about you is interesting. And then you think nothing about you is interesting like you or that. That's not mined- what I'm saying. I think you're taking what I'm saying and like blowing it out into like a level of like self-hatred and like self-judgment. I, I don't think that me as a person is like I, I just am saying creatively yeah. in terms of making content on a daily and weekly basis. Yeah. I'm struggling with that. Yeah. I mean, I hear you. And so, you know, like I had started trying to get more into TikTok to be like, oh, I can do comedy videos on here and and maybe it won't be as like mental health focused. It'll just be more fun. Like when I used to just like make sketches and stuff and like I don't have any ideas for it and it's and it's hard. And so and, you know, with like Twitter, it's like I used to try to tweet once a day and it was like very disciplined and now I'm trying to be like maybe I wait more until a tweet comes to me Mm -hmm. Um, but then there's like a lot of times where nothing comes to me for a significant amount of time and then I'm like well do I force myself to to make something or do I just wait and so I am in a a time of like um, renegotiating my creative process with myself because I think it used to be very disciplined and like a large outpouring of of content because I was on this strict schedule and that's that's still true for for everything emotional support lady but like Mm -hmm. for my other accounts like trying to just like let myself feel like well trusting that like if I don't have an idea today maybe I will have one next week (laughs) but like yeah putting that trust in myself is really fucking hard and like some days it goes a lot easier than other days Especially because you see all these people making stuff and they're so creative and they're so good at it. But this is what I'm worried about is that how much of your like energy and depletion and like fear and whatever is based on watching what these other people are doing or seeing other people's tweets go viral. Like once I stopped seeing what other people were doing and like muted kind of everybody on Instagram who I compare myself to, my actual work started being completed. Like, I think you being like, oh, these people are so creative. Like, they are. But I, I, this is what this girl is talking about. Is like, she has all of this art and stuff that she wants to do. But like, 90% of this email was like, I look at Instagram. I just think that that is like, clearly you're upset right now. And like, I feel like it's, it indicates that this stuff is like toxic. I don't, I don't think that my consumption of it is toxic I just like you know I think we we've always had very different relationships to social media I enjoy watching TikTok as a consumer Mm -hmm. it brings me joy (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and uh, you know I I think it's just it's just this thing of like having to remind myself that like 
that like I'm just not having the same output that I used to have and that I just like and that's okay and that like when it when I do have a longer project like I am able to complete it the issue is never like completing work that I have it's if I have the work if I have the project I can complete it it's more just even thinking of ideas for for things I'm I'm finding to be a bit tricky lately but I'm saying where I put the ideas right so like if I have an idea and I am like ooh, that would be a really good tweet because I don't have Twitter, I go, what about that idea was good? Could it be a show? Could it be something where I like, you know, like I, I think I was giving stuff away for free on Twitter and then feeling pressured to keep building on that kind of thing. Or like, I don't know. I don't know. And like, I thought I just kept going in my mind over and over again. Like I'm giving these apps things for free. I'm giving these apps things for free. And then it makes you feel like you're running out of ideas because you have to keep feeding this like free machine when like, if you just stop and go like in the beginning of my career, if I had an idea, I would be like, okay, that's a really good idea for an essay. How do I make that into an essay? But then it got to a period of like the time on Twitter where I would just be like, I would just have the idea and then tweet it out and like for free and like instead of taking the time and be in going okay well this thought was interesting like what 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 about that would resonate to humanity the times where I've been viral have never have not been good I had a a, a two book deal with a, a a publishing company and I had a tweet go viral that was like just misunderstood that now people say the exact same thing and it's completely like nobody cares. But it just so happened that that day, it was like the day that like, like the discourse decided to be viral about this one particular thing, which happens all the time. Like someone tweeted the other day, like why don't cis men have bed frames, which is a thing that I have seen tweeted 4,000 times by different women. And that day, it just so happened that someone saw it and picked it up and was like, this is whatever they said about it. So like, and then it became discourse. It just, it's, it's, like, it's like the opposite of luck of the draw. So that day, I just so happened to be the person they chose to be the main character of Twitter. Because of that, the, the publisher reneged on the deal and I lost both of the books in, in the period of 24 hours because of a tweet. So it, to me, it's not helping like to look at that stuff or to see everybody succeeding or to see like, I feel like I felt this deeply like that it just became like a waste of time, a liability. And like it makes you think that you're out of ideas when you're actually not out of ideas. You just are sucked into this thing that goes so fast. I mean, I definitely agree with the liability part. And that has added to my anxiety a lot. And I think that is a large part of why, you know, because a lot of ideas I have, I go, oh, this could be misinterpreted incorrectly. That's the problem. That's the thing. And, and you know what? Like when you tweet that, that can be misinterpreted and go whatever viral and blah, 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 and you are canceled. Okay, fine. But then if you write it into a book, if you write it into a screenplay, if you write it into an essay that contains nuance, then you get the benefit of being like, I said what I said in my art. Like, this is my art, and I said what I said in my art. And I think that that's a great approach when it is your hobby and when it is your, you know, like you have other ways of getting money but like you're acting as though like by writing that screenplay that ensures that I sell that screenplay and that's not true but it creates no of course not but it like I haven't been able to sell anything in a long time and so like in over a year and like that's scary and so part of what I have to do to make myself more marketable 
to sell these bigger projects is I have to maintain this fan base online. Yeah, I, I understand. What I've done in the past is no longer building on itself. I've hit this thing where it, it is, it's scary and like I need to support myself. And so yeah. if I was like Reese Witherspoon, I wouldn't be on social media. <laughs> like yeah. if I hit a level where I knew that I was financially stable as a creative in this industry, I would delete my accounts. Absolutely. <laughs> in a lot of ways, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. And so it is a part of my business and that's what's tricky. Like my goal is to get to a place where I don't need to post or when I post, it's literally just sugar being silly. And it doesn't matter who looks at it because I have an overall deal with Amazon or what, you know, like, but I'm not, I'm not in that place. And, and me just working on these bigger projects by myself, like there's no guarantee that those are going to sell. You and I have very different creative processes, very different ways. But we of also viewing. have different careers. You have to understand that. Okay. We just, we just have always had different opinions on like the, the creative process and the, and the process of in what order things should. We just have very different opinions on art. I've lost things mostly from social media, maybe in a way that you've gained. I don't know. But I wonder how much art is not getting made because people are worried about Instagram or if, it, if it's viral worthy or they're opposite, worried about if it does go viral in the wrong way, how much art is not being made because of that. Right. And I mean, to back to the question, like I think it's really helpful for people to be creative on the side. And to pick for it to be your main career is a lot and it is scary and it is not a meritocracy and there's so much luck involved. And even if you are the best at what you do, that does not mean that you will be able to support yourself doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's like a lot to be said for figuring out a way to have a, a job career that you like and then continuing to do art and creativity on the side. Mm -hmm. Yes. But I just worry about like 90% of this email was about Instagram and we didn't learn anything about her art. Sure. But I, but I guess for me, it's never been like if I'm, I, it's either social media or my projects. Like I've always been able to do both. I yeah. just feel like I struggle more with creating the content for the social media. Like I could sit down and, and write a script tomorrow. It's more right. just like, you know, I, I don't, I don't see them, I guess, as, as mutually exclusive as you do. We have no idea if that was helpful for you at all, but you know, it was helpful for us to process things out loud. Yeah. Please go tell Allison <laughs> that she's a, a wonderful creative person who has tons of ideas. Okay. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we have tough questions with Olayami Aloran. So stick around like this wasn't tough enough. <laughs> Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Olayami Oloran, who is a public defender and um, Allison's favorite Twitter follow and a legal commentator and a legal observer and a writer and just all around cool person. Hello. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. I just I want to get into the the public defending of it all and the court system. And I, I was listening to an interview you did and just starting off of like you were saying, you know, people think that the the justice system isn't working, but it is actually working the way it was intended. Yeah. Can you sort of elaborate a bit on that? 
Um, I think it's two things. I think people tend to think of uh, the criminal system as having mistakes. And those mistakes are things that are these insidious things that happen in the dark, like something you got to parse out. But in actuality, if you step into a court, all of the racism and discrimination and all of the injustice that you see people writing about that come off like these um, horrendous anomaly stories, it's just a daily practice of being in court. It's not something you have to look for. It's very clear. Like you could see it and the way the court officers talk to your black clients, the way the court officers talk to you as a black lawyer, they mistake for a client. You know, um, it's very, very clear. So that's what I mean. People tend to think of the criminal system. They call it in and of itself. They call it the criminal justice system. Like the implication there is that it's this 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 um, this wheel of justice. That's what it's there to do and to right wrongs. So when you hear about it doing unjust things, you think it's a mistake. That's that's literally why it's named that. It's a very deliberate misnomer. It's so that people automatically buy into it. So in and of itself, it's just it's just plain as day once you see it in action. What is it like to be a public defender? Because I know that you guys get so many cases. You're so overworked. Like, is that part of how it's rigged against people and that they're not getting the same representation that, that they should? Absolutely. I think obviously it's meant to put uh, your clients in that entire part of the system at a disadvantage. There's really no other way to put it. There's no other reason why you we, we make less than uh, prosecutors. We're funded less. We are in these different positions. So for sure, without fail. I'm um, fortunate. I work at the Legal Aid Society, and that's one of the more probably best funded, you know what I mean, of public defense organizations. So, but yes, it's, it's definitely, it definitely creates strain. But I think in any legal work and in anything that you're doing, depending on what your life and your circumstances are, you make, can make things work for me. I'm a single 20-something-year-old person. I've got no children. So I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> I have the time. I can do it. I feel like I hear all the time, though, that a lot of times people who've been convicted are just told to take plea deals, whether or not they even did the crime. So, OK, we're going to have this conversation. All right, let's let's. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of blame, a lot of what is wrong with the criminal system is intentionally placed on the backs of defense attorneys and public defenders who have nothing to do with it. The reason why, please, you know what I mean? You're in a position why you have to take a plea or why a plea is something that a public defender or the lawyer is conveying to you. We didn't make the plea. The plea is the prosecution and it's the prosecutors and the judges and the legislators that have set it up where you're in the worst position possible. You know, it's like if, if the plea offer, if I could get you an offer of three years, but otherwise you go to jail and you're risking 15 to 25. You know what I mean? And I recognize that as unfair as it is, I can think all I want in my soul that this is wrong. Like this is wrong. This should not be happening. Right. You shouldn't be being charged for this. This kind of behavior shouldn't be criminalized. We shouldn't respond to this with, you know, incarceration. But we do. That is exactly mm -hmm. how the system responds. I could feel that way all I want. If I know that this judge is going to convict you, I know what they, they have. You know, this is the next thing. It's my job and also my literal obligation to convey what the plea offer is. So I think and I get it. And like and this is the thing I Clients, they deal with you. They're interacting with you. They don't have the opportunity to take out their frustrations on the prosecution or the judge. And also they don't have that understanding of the system. They don't really, you know what I mean? It's not, they, they don't, they don't have the burden. It, it shouldn't be their burden to have to figure out who do I, you know, address my qualms with. And I also think there is some legitimacy, of course, to any like criticisms about public defenders, right? Like not every public defender is a saint, you know, and it goes both ways. But I get it. I get it in the sense that they have to, who else? We're the ones coming to them with the with the offer. And a lot of times people tend to think, especially because of how the criminal system is portrayed in the media and on TV and stuff, people think that you're not trying hard enough or there there is this magical way. You know, you watch TV and and you know, fake lawyers get up in court and just start a, a speech and and it doesn't work like but your clients do feel like you can do that. Like say this word, say this plea for me. And it's like, 
I'm telling you, you're up between a rock and a hard place. So yeah, I mean, there's that, I will never say like most cases don't go to trial. That's just the reality about the criminal system. Nine out of 10 things are going to plea out in some way, whether or not it's a plea to a criminal conviction, you know, or a violation or disorderly, something lesser, but most things do in fact end in pleas. That's the truth. Um, but that's just the reality of how the legislators and the prosecutors and the judges have set it up. I saw a video of you talking about the types of crimes that get brought to court for largely black and brown people that are not, you know, like a family member calling on another family member or and what kinds of like mistakes are made there or how much harder it is there? It's honestly most of the cases that I have, I open up, I see are just like regular like disputes. Like someone got mad at their roommate. It'll be something like, Two roommates got into an argument. Someone was, you know, cursing each other out. So someone calls the police and now they automatically arrest the roommate. Now there's an order of protection. A roommate can't live there. You know, or a mother is upset with her son because the son's not doing homework or he's skipping school or something like that. So she decides, I'm going to call the police. You know, have the police come talk to him or scam the police instead, arrest her child, issue an order of protection that she does not want. Now her child is homeless, you know, or someone very common. People call the police because they're, someone's having a mental health episode or, you know, and they don't know how to respond to it. They want to get them to the hospital. They want arrest them. Even when they take them, take them to the hospital, tell them, you know, oh, I'm just taking you to the hospital. The minute they get uh, released from the hospital, they're at the doors to shackle them. You know, so it's just everyday silliness. Like more times than not, I open a case and I'm like, you, you can't be serious. Like, what, what, like, are we having a serious conversation? Sometimes I even have to make, like, make it a point to make a, make, make noise to the judge, like judge, let's, let's be serious. Open this, read it, read, read the actual allegations and tell me we don't have better things we can do with our time. So, yeah, like those are the cases. Is the judge ever responsive to that? Yeah, like sometimes the judges, you know, judges indicate to you how they feel. You get the impression that they think a case is stupid. When a judge's case is really stupid, they'll say, you know, the minute it's out, they go, people, can we resolve this? Can we resolve this? Like now they, you know, they make it kind of known that they think you should, you know, make an offer. The, the uh, prosecution should get rid of it. You know, I had a case once where um, my client was, a, it wasn't even a crime. Like it wasn't even charged as a crime, like violation littering. He threw a caprice, they accused him of throwing a caprice on the ground and they Stop. beat the brakes off it. Yes. Beat him, beat him, tased him, beat him so badly. Like he was there in a hospital gown, like could not walk. And I'm like, to the judge, like, the judge and the judge turned like with outrage with me, like to the people like, are you serious? And, you know, and they still wouldn't like it's not even a criminal charge, but they still would not get rid of the case. They still were like, oh, we're not we're not prepared to do anything. We don't care. Like, oh, we'll make a note for the sign. Like when I make my big record, like my client is literally he's been tased. He's been beaten. Look at him. You know what I mean? The judge is saying this. They're like, we'll make a note for we'll make a note for the assigned prosecutor. That's it. Oftentimes in court, it feels like I'm the only sane person in the room. I'm like. I wish it was an audience. Like, are people seeing what I, it's just not, it's illogical. And what is fueling all of this? Is it just racism and classism? Like, I think uh, racism, classism combined with power, maintenance of power and mm -hmm. um, just the reality that this is a business, right? Like, I think when, when you're talking about things as a structure and, and you know, as a system that's, that's um, corrupt, you forget, you know, these are individual people with just like personal motivations, right? Like lawyer types, like, I'm trying to get a job. I'm trying to move up mobility, like not me, them. <laughs> like I'm trying to <laughs> move up mobility. You know what I mean? Like they're looking, they like just the fact, whatever Joe Schmo, like, oh, I'm a prosecutor. I'm assigned this now. Oh, I'm a judge. Oh, I'm this. I'm trying to, you know what I mean? So everybody's trying to rub shoulders with everybody. Everybody's trying to get in where they fit in. So it's just this larger system, this boys club that's at work. 
So yeah, it's, it's, it's all of these different things that are already present and how the system runs, but a lot of it is just personal gain and people not being prepared to make integrity like decisions. Cause I, there are some people that, you know, work in these positions that work at the DAs or, you know, even court officers or something that actually would, if you ask them what they really felt or something, you know, they would be inclined to recognize like, this is not right, or this is unjust, or I have a friend from law school who's a prosecutor, and he called me blue in the face every day about something, you know, bad that he thinks they're doing. And it's like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll quit. You know what I mean? Say right. something, you know what I mean? But they're not going to do that. And I'm not, you know, shooting anybody, you know, whatever, self-preservation is he, I suppose. But they're not going to, they're not going to say anything. And, you know, it's, it, it, I guess you have to make a decision whether or not you think there's any difference in that or what's worse. Like the people who are consciously on the side of the wrong that they're doing are the people that are like, uh, I don't think it's so great, but it's my job. And they're still doing the same thing and working towards the same ends. Yeah. Do you feel like there is any way that we can restructure how flawed this system is? Like, is there, is there hope here at all? <sighs> restructure it? No, it's not, it's not a structure. It's not a, it's not a structuring problem. It's, it's every it's every aspect of it. Like, here's my thing. You know, before I decided I wanted to be become a public defender, like how that moment came, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I was an undergrad and I was writing my thesis on uh, race in the criminal system and whatnot. And, you know, I determined that it felt essential. It's necessary that I do this work. But that means from this perspective, I've been looking at this and all the different levels of this process and who's in the system and how it works since then. And what I've realized since going to law school and since going to court and, you know, meeting all these people, you know, I've interned at the DA's office. I work at, I'm a public defender. I did all of this. Um, it's not an accident. You know what I mean? Like in the, all of the, all of the ways that you think like, oh, you know, people will talk about how coercion happens. You know what I mean? Like all these like factors that are compounded, but in actuality, right. It, it doesn't just like, happen to fall onto people like there are prosecutors people judges legislators making calculated decisions to make things you know what i mean to put people in a position where they have to take a plea or where they're stuck in jail or where they're doing all these different things it isn't like you know mm, if we tweaked right here we could get the system quite right no it's people actively very involved it's a very organized structured messed up system and these people you know are enforcing it so no you can't if you you restructure it you just you just shuffle it around. So no, I, I think honestly the system, I think there's always going to be um, progress that's made, right? In, in, in the form of reform or concessions. Like I definitely think you can move further this way. But I think if you're looking, if you, if you want to be honest about what is actually going to like completely change the system, it's literally a new system. You have to get rid of the problem. That's what it is. But as far as a medium goes, I think it will progress. Maybe these little initiatives, you know, might make it a little better and you'll keep working and you'll keep adding, 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 adding more on it. But just in and of itself, it needs way more than just a few tune-ups, just a few different laws. The whole thing, how criminality is constructed in this country, you know, the, our, even our understanding of who is a criminal, what is a crime, where police need to be, how essential police are. It, it, it goes so much deeper than um, just looking at the court, right? Yeah, can we talk a little bit about that, about our view of what crime is? I actually was talking about this. I was just watching Sexy Beast before we came <laughs> on this, right? My friend was over and we were watching Sexy Beast. And um, two white people are on the date and they're like, you know, doing a little cute little date banter. And and and, and the guy asked her, um, he asked her, oh, what's the wildest place you've ever had sex or something? She's like, well, I've had sex in public a lot. And he's like, oh, me too. And I'm like, isn't this cute how like when you watch white things, it's like, oh, quirky white, like the way like things that would automatically have a criminal connotation in anybody else's movie story, media presentation. Mm -hmm. When you watch white things, it's just like, 
quirky thing. It doesn't have the same. I'm like, see, that's a cute little quirky date story for y'all, but that's sex offender registry for black and people of color, right? right? And, and when I watch How I Met Your Mother, the first episode, um, when Ted Mosby decides he's going to steal the blue horn for Robin, I'm like, in Manhattan. So I know for a fact what charges. I'm like, if you were a black person, charges, <laughs> charges, a full order of protection. You can never go back to that restaurant. As a matter of fact, you can't even be on the streets of that restaurant. Yeah. Like, so it's things like that. I, I think about that very, very often. I was watching Back to the Future on the plane and I'm like, mm, reckless driving, <laughs> la, la, la. Like, I'm just looking at all the charges, charges, charges. And the thing about it is, it seems like, you know, you're being like, oh, jokes. But if you watch actual, like, you watch black media, you watch people of color shows, movies, anything, whatever. The police are very much so there's even in our fictional things, even in the like most lighthearted thing. They're a part of it because you could never do these same kind of playful activities. Even our media, they're so entrenched mm-hmm. in criminalizing us in real life. We can't even portray it in a fictional universe in the media without it being responded to with police. But white shows, it's just like even an episode of Sex in the City where Carrie decides she's going to smoke weed because uh, Burger dumped her on a post-it note. So she's like, oh, she can have a fun night. And the police like put her in the car, like arrest or whatever. And the next thing you know, they're at the diner drinking Frosties, laughing about, oh, that was the night I got arrested. And I'm just like, uh-huh. That'd be a Yale, a year of court. And that's yeah. what I'm thinking of anybody else. And that's what, to me, it's like that. Like how um, Black people and people of color and crime is literally discussed and how it's painted as crime as opposed to just regular living fun stories and experiences mm-hmm. or whatever in the media is very, very central to how it's viewed. It's the way that like when people talk about violence and violent crimes and they talk about Black neighborhoods and Black people fighting and da da da. Every white guy I know has been in a bar fight, a brawl something, you know, they're getting all kinds of scraps in it, but it's like, it's just a part of boyish this, mm-hmm. manhood, da da da. You know, and it has an entirely different spin that is given when we're dealing with non-Black and people of color. So that, that in and of itself portrays so much that once you get in the court, how people view black people, oh, you're accused of this crime. Oh, it was assault. No one cares about the details, anything. It's how these things are labeled, right? It's a playful fight when some white kids are fighting and it's an assault. And uh, you know what I mean? And the threat and an intimidation and menacing and all this different stuff when it's other people. So that's what I mean. Like that, how we view um, different people, different groups, and what we think of as crime in and of itself informs how our criminal system shakes down, how juries think, how juries convict. So, And so much of it is at the police's discretion, right? In Mm -hmm. terms of what they arrest and what they enforce. And yes, like I think you've said elsewhere, like, you know, that they just put more police in black and brown communities. Exactly, exactly. They just line those communities. And, And this is the thing. If you put a magnifying glass to absolutely anybody, they're doing something illegal, right? right? America is a place that is overly, everything has been regulated. There is a law for everything that you could think of. There is a criminal regulation. It is the most overly policed and on paper place that I could think of. Like I was raised in the Bahamas. It's not like this. I got to America and I'm like, well, what, what is happening? You do not need to, you know, but it is like that. And so the reality is, there's a law. Everybody could be held criminally responsible for something, but they only choose certain people and communities to deal with it in that way and to respond to it in that way. And so that's what you end up getting left with is just unfair application. And I don't want, and I want to be always be clear about this. I don't want the system to level up in the sense that I don't want white people to be as mistreated by the criminal law as everybody else. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a punitive criminal system that's, you know, handing all of us ourselves. But I want, I want the same the same recognition that you have that things don't need to be criminal or you don't need to respond to that or that's not helpful or the same concern you have for those families in that community. Have that for ours, you know? Like my friend told me, based back to the sexy beast discussion, um, he's like, 
he went out uh, with a white girl once and she told him how, you know, she got pulled over for a DUI and the police just escorted her home. And he was like, must be nice. And yeah. I'm like, and the thing is, and hear, hear me out. That is what should happen. Logically speaking, like if you think you somebody is, is drunk driving, somebody's driving when they shouldn't be, that's a danger to them or to other people. If your job as a police officer is to protect and serve the community, that's what you should do. You should make sure this person gets home safely. And you should do that for everybody. You shouldn't. Right. Why does this person get escorted home and the rest of them is going to get violently beat and arrested um, and possibly killed and be stuck in court for who knows how long, probably with a criminal conviction that's going to affect the rest of your life and all kind of fines you can't pay. That's what's unfair. So it's not it's not that they're, you know, that they have this leniency towards uh, white people. It's that you recognize all of these same fundamental, the same way you thought this was better to help her than to punish her. Why is it not better to help um, help us and to punish us. Right. And what role do you think that private prisons play in all of this? Um, I think private prisons are obviously bad. Like, <laughs> the, like the, ob- <laughs> the, the obvious, everybody knows that. But um, public prisons are not no peach on a beach either. And there's privatization happening in, like, even in, within public prisons, right? They're still being used. Uh, inmates are still being used for for prison labor. You know what I mean? They're still, still being done there. It's still being done for a profit. All these things are still happening there. So uh, while private prisons are heinous, they are not especially heinous by comparison to public prisons the way that it's been made. And I think a lot of that is because you know, when you're able to focus on one, people like to feel like, oh, if I fix this one thing, I can still otherwise keep the system intact. Like, mm-hmm. it, like it's not like prison isn't the problem itself. You know what I mean? And the fact that we have this criminal system and this mass incarceration, it's its just this accident, this private prisons thing that somehow was born out of it. That was a mistake. That's causing bad stuff. And then people can focus their energies there while still being fully invested in maintaining the system that's otherwise perpetuating the harm. So private prisons are bad, but public prisons are bad, too, because all of the prisons are bad. Yeah. What do you what are your thoughts on that? Like, are you pro abolishing prisons? Like what what do you think is the right is the right solution. Um, I'm an abolitionist, but I want to make sure I say this. This is a lot of like, you know, catchiness of like being like abolished now and all of this. I don't, and I don't use that for a very specific reason because I, I think it, it, t- it takes away from what the argument is, right? Like I recognize that abolition can't happen over overnight. The whole concept is the idea that you start divesting from this mass incarceration, this criminal system that we've invested so heavily in and start putting those funds elsewhere into the community, into mental health resources, into solving and addressing the root court causes of crime and helping those communities. And by doing that, you naturally don't end up with so much crime or so many problems, right? Because it's not untrue that people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing, right? Or that wrong things happen or that, uh, you know, mental illness and all these different things lead to horrible things. So we want to actually address that and, you know, decrease the prevalence of seeing things like that in society, right? So the concept of like, if I say abolish now, obviously that would never happen, but even theoretically how people who don't understand what abolition is respond to it, you know, is going to be with rightful alarm, I guess, to some degree, because that doesn't consciously make sense. What I'm trying to do is, you know, over they start, start unplugging from it, start unplugging from it so that eventually we live in a society that doesn't have to have this. You know what I mean? We don't have to have a system that relies on prison. So yeah, ultimately I'm, I'm, I'm for abolition. I don't think that incarceration doesn't do anything for anybody. It's just punitive. That's all it is. Like it doesn't accomplish anything in the sense that it doesn't erase the harm that's happened. It does not prevent future harm. In fact, it pretty much guarantees that you're going to have future harm. No one, no one goes into the criminal, into the criminal system goes into prison, you know, they, they're exposed to all kind of violence and worse circumstances. And people know that. It's not like they don't know that. You know prison is not a good place. You know, people are in constant danger. So I don't know what you think that would breed if this, if the conditions that they've lived in already in their community, in their society has led them to this point. 
by worsening all of their life conditions. I don't know how you think they're going to respond to stress, confrontation, conflict, and problems, right? It's only going to be worse. So to me, if I really believe, if I'm really trying to better the society around me and better the community, I have to want to better the people that you think are so bad. Or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The people that are in the criminal system. If they are the quote-unquote problem, that is what is harming the rest of us. Well, you need to help those people to help yourself, you know? So I think maybe people need to um, change the way they see it because they they tend to look at it as just like forgiving, not not getting to have what they believe is like rightful anger and hatred and disdain and wanting to punish people. And it's not really about that. You need to look at it as, you know, self-preservation for you and the community around you. So, yeah, that's where that's where I'm at with it. And so what would be the, the right step if like someone does commit a crime and like how, do, how does reform happen? How does someone if someone commits a crime, I think. Well, I, here's the thing. A lot of when you say crime, like what kind of crime? Because most crime is not what we think of as like most crime is not violent crime at all. It's not right. rapes and murders and all these things. It's not that at all. Most crime is like you curse somebody out. You threaten like, oh, I'm going to beat your ass. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. it's what it's just regular like activity. So, you know, people will ask me, how do I feel if my clients are guilty? And I'm like, I often, if you mean guilty, like whether or not they did the thing someone said that they did. Yeah. A lot of time that's the case. And I don't think that that thing should be being criminally prosecuted. It doesn't need to be there. <laughs> Sometimes I think people forget. And in other countries, like life just moves on, you know, like in, in real life, like, <laughs> no, it just does. Like in the Bahamas or something, if somebody, if, if, you know, my friend gets beat up, then he got beat up. That's the thing that happened. You know what I mean? Like life moves on. That is a story. We know you got cursed out. That wasn't fair. That wasn't right. You know, life not everything requires like let me bring down the hammer i have been wronged i must get retribution it's just not that so i'm like yeah yeah if somebody did something then they did something wrong address them in real life go talk to them like there are other ways and i think that in of itself makes us forget like what community is supposed to be but community is supposed to be people that like take you to task you know within that so that you don't have to rely on a criminal mm-hmm. system and all that. Address people. You know, when people in your life do t- terrible things or they do things you don't approve of or whatever, address them. Tell them that. Open your mouth. Stop looking for for uh, a criminal system to want to take everything from them and radically change the rest of their life. For what? That's what I think about. It's like, it'll be we're in court for a year fighting about somebody, somebody slapped somebody a year ago. This person has moved. Days have gone. You're, you've continued living your life. Everybody's living. Why are we in court? possibly you know change like why are we in court it just doesn't make sense so yeah i think they i think you know if they commit a crime like they have committed a crime like depending on what it is some things like listen i understand like everybody's free to there are some things that are outrageous you know there's the rare anomaly serial killer the these things but these are not indicative of what you're seeing in the criminal system that's just not what it is i got a hundred cases underneath this laptop and they're all goofy um just regular <laughs> regular human interaction so I just think you can let things rock. I think things like that's just, you just move on. People have committed crime against me before. Just moved on. Like life just <laughs> kept going. Like we addressed that in other ways. I know I don't like this person. I told them how I feel about that. <laughs> like, you know, other ways. It doesn't got to be court. Not everything has to be court, America. <laughs> like, And so much is probably drug charges too, right? So like, what would it look like to decriminalize drugs? How would that exactly. completely change the court system? And the thing is, they like to jail people so much. They're so in the business of jailing people that even when something is like decriminalized and they know like we ultimately they're not going to be able to continue on with the prosecution of it. They still arrest them. They still arrest them. They still bring the charges. I got like people have been saying, even though weed was just officially, you know, this year, people have been saying weed is decriminalized and pain in New York as this progressive utopia since since when? Since I got it, I've been like, 
my first case was a marijuana case. Like they arrest people for it. It's who they arrest for it. It's how they respond to it. That's different, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not arresting the white guys in Williamsburg and Manhattan. That's true. They can smoke their weed on the street. Not everybody else. So mm-hmm. yeah, they need to, they need to decriminalize drugs, but they also, eradicators decriminalize drugs. Some, it's, some things just need to be legal because decriminalization just gives them option. It gives, um, mm-hmm. it gives, uh, what's the word? discretion you get you get to make a choice police and prosecutors just get to execute like uh, exercise their own personal judgment and where do you think those personal judgments lead them right. so that's always my i'm always and i'm always cautious that i'm aware of that like even my friend is staying with me and when he came in he's like oh we could smoke weed in in new york i was like <laughs> i was like I was like, don't go to this. I was like, do not go in the street smoke. He's like, oh, I saw this guy in Manhattan in Times Square smoking weed. I was like, you saw him smoking weed. You don't do, do not do it because I'm going to be mad if I have to come up my bed to come get you out of jail. Like, so it's different. Yeah. And can we talk a little bit about the actual root of quote unquote crime and how that is like so misunderstood and seen as like a moral failing versus like a result of the society we live in? Oh, yeah. The root of crime is poverty. And the problem is people think poverty is like, some kind of self-imposed choice, you know, like people are just up and choosing to live um, stressful, worse lives. I think everybody has a like an innate understanding of this and they just kid themselves. Everybody knows poverty and stressful conditions is what leads to crime because the minute the economy's bad, the minute there was a lockdown, you know what I mean? Everyone was concerned for their safety. As soon as it feels like money is tight, you know what I mean? People immediately respond. The minute the, the lockdown happened, gun sales were all the guns were, were bought from the stores. You know why? Because people started preparing for a purge and all kind of, <laughs> all kind of um, balance to happen because in their mind, they're like, people are going to be broke. People are going to be stressed. People are going to be home. And when people are broke and when people are stressed and when people can't pay their bills and when people have all kind of conditions decreasing the quality of their living, that is when things get frosty. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're a lot more likely to knock somebody out if you can't pay your rent. You know, if you're, you're having a bad day. If things are already going bad, there's all these other things happening to you. You're going to respond to things not as your best self because you're not your best self, you know? So that's what it is. And a lot, and what these neighborhoods that they call, you know, impoverished neighborhoods and impoverished communities and marginalized, they didn't get that way accidentally. It's, it's, it's where funding is being put. It's where, and it's happened. I like, I don't need, I don't think I have the time to walk anybody through the whole history from slavery to now and all of the different other social and legal injustices that have happened in this country. But poverty is not by happenstance. It's not an accident. There's a reason why certain communities have, and it's because they took and they maintained at the expense of others. So that put like living in, in impoverished conditions leads to crime. And I think that to me is evident just in the way American like media and celebrity is done. Right. Oftentimes an American celebrity that they love so much is because they have an under an underdog story is how they painted, you know, like they reference, oh, when they grew up and they were poor and all these other unsavory things that, you know, used to happen in their life when they were poor and growing up and coming up and now it's like this big story. And it's like, but the, the country that you live in is jail, jails these people, jails them like that says that they are on a regular basis, unredeemable. They're, they need to go to jail. They need to be locked away. But those exact same people, when they happen to avoid that and make it, you know, and now they're rich and it is, this is love, cherished person you all have around. You have them on your walls. You're inviting them to hang out with Robert Kraft. You're doing all this different stuff. Like they don't have a criminal record because you're not scared because you recognize what was scary about them or what things you thought were so scary, what wrong things they were doing was circumstance based. The moment mm-hmm. that you realize that that is no longer their circumstances, you don't fear them. You're not worried about them. You don't, they don't need to be locked away. So to me, Americans 
I think if you if you if you if you do one just one more analysis to it and you look at how you really like perceive celebrities and people and just look around, it's very clear. And I feel like the answer is there. You know that is it's poverty and circumstance. It's not that people are irredeemable monsters. I I've I've represented what a thousand people accused of crimes. I don't know any freak show monsters, no person that didn't make sense. I've never heard, you know, I've never read a complaint and not heard the other side or a story or something that's like, yeah, it seems about like life. I've heard a story like this. You know, <laughs> these aren't these like, yeah, these aren't these aberration, magical, mythical, terrible people. They're just regular people. There's just regular people with some like circumstances who are poor, who are struggling, who are facing and battling other things. And that's just what it is. How do you get up every day and work in a system that is so rigged? Because I believe it's necessary. The only reason I do what I do is because it's important. You know, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. That was always the case. But the older I get, the more I realize that I don't dream of a life of labor. I'm like, wow, wouldn't it be nice if I could lay in my bed and not do any of this stressful stuff? (laughs) Right? So to me, the only thing that is going to be so much more important than my like peace, chilling and all of this is honestly to fight for Black people. That's really what it is. Black people and marginalized people and fighting against a criminal system that I know is wrong because I know that that's happening. Like, and that's something I'm consciously thinking about every day. The fact that I'm you know, a Black person who can walk around and talking free. And I know there's so many people that look like me that are really like stuck in a prison cell and there's, you know, seemingly nothing that could be done about it. And it's more that they're trying to put there. That, that's a problem for me. I think sometimes we, I, I was having this conversation with some of my friends, you know, we forget, like it's easy to think, you know, racism and all these like terrible systems of injustice are far away or something because it's not happening to you. And you live in a time mm-hmm. where things seem so modern. You're on the computer. You're talking to all these people. If you look out, it seems like we're all mingling together. You, you know, Beyonce is Beyonce. You know, there's so many like populist, successful people, Black people. You can forget that, oh, no, no, no. This is the exact same America where this is still happening, where the average Black man between 18 to 29 years old is still um likely to be incarcerated at some point in his life where, you know, all of my black male friends can relate to having been arrested at some point in time or been profiled by a police officer. Me, myself, have been pulled over in a car 14 times in New York City. Like, you know, and I know that and I can't unknow that. So for me, it wouldn't, it just is a matter of it's not good enough for me. I wouldn't be able to like live with myself because it's the same reason why I decided I need to be a public defender as opposed to doing something like divorce law, which I had thought I wanted to do at the beginning of colleges. I don't think it's sufficient in a system where Black people are disproportionately profiled, arrested, and incarcerated for me as a Black person to just become a lawyer and go do something that doesn't actively benefit Black people. You know what I mean? We're so we're, we're, we're less than 5% of the legal profession, despite being so overrepresented in the criminal system. That's the issue, and I don't think the only Black person in the courtroom should be the defendant. I think people deserve to be and are at a at an advantage by having an attorney that looks like them, that sees them, is going to humanize them and understand them and really care about what the impact is going to be on their family and on the community and try to take that psychological component into consideration. So that's why. Well, that was a, that was a wonderful answer. <laughs> Thank you. This has been so helpful and illuminating. And now I just have to ask if you want to play a silly game show. Yes, I'll play it. I'll play it. <laughs> Um, So this game show is called Hypotheticals. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions that you have, and then you would tell me what you would do in that situation. Okay, I'm excited. (laughs) So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? I'm excited. You've been married for 30 years. You find out that 10 years ago, your partner drunkenly made out with your neighbor at a block party. 
This neighbor has been trying unsuccessfully to steal them away from you ever since with elaborate schemes and love letters. Would you stay with this cheater? Yeah, I'm going to say with my, first of all, a kiss, third. We've been together 30 years ago and this happened a decade ago and I've been chilling happily and loving my house. I'm not leaving my husband over no kiss, but I'm going to beat that woman's ass. That's going to happen. <laughs> what? No, because she kissed my husband, you know. You know, I like that. that's not, you know, whatever. You didn't make the obligation. No, 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 that's different. But you actively try to steal my husband every... Oh, no. <laughs> what? And, you, and you've been actively scheming to get him since so a decade. That's a decade of trying to stress me out to get my husband. I'm whooping your ass daily. Like, yeah, that's what's happening. Are you upset that your husband didn't tell you about the scheme for 10 years? Like you just found out about it. I just found out and he didn't, he, cause he told me. Yeah. Like he, you, you find a love letter and then you discover that she's been asking. Did write letters for, to my husband? Mm-hmm. He's been keeping it from you. And he was, he was, he was responding. He didn't tell us. He woman. wasn't responding. He, other than the kiss, he wasn't interested, but he's been keeping it from you for 10 years that she's been after him. Did he tell, did he tell this woman that his wife is crazy? Like, what? <laughs> um, oh, well, yeah, no, we can have a problem. First of all, I, you know, on one hand, I want to think, I'm trying to think of what my ex-boyfriends would think about me. And I could see, I could see a man that's with me thinking, you know what? She can carry on bad. I'm just not going to respond to the woman. So there's no need for me to tell her because it's going to be a thing. I could see that. And mm-hmm. I, I could think that's reasonable and plausible. But not you getting no letters from no woman and you keeping them. We're going to have a problem. We're going to have a problem. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to divorce him. I'm not going to divorce him, but we're going to exchange words. <laughs> That's a very good answer. I'll accept good. it. <laughs> good. Okay. So our next game is, is this a date? You mentioned you need to go to the DMV to get a real ID and your coworker says that they need to do that too. They suggest making appointments on the same day so that you can keep each other company. But on the day of the appointment, your coworker shows up at the DMV with a picnic basket. Is this a date? First of all, no, hell no. (laughs) No, no, and a picnic basket at the DMV? Sir, sir. Do you you think they think it's a date? I think they need to go talk to somebody professionally if they think so. I think they (laughs) might if they brought a picnic or, you know, First of all, where are you going to, let me just, this is what I want to know. Where are you going to spread the picnic basket at the DMV? Like on the seats on the side? That's, and that's gross. Um, I think he thinks it's a date. I think he thinks it's a date and I think he's goofy. Yeah. So you're, yeah. so it's a date, but no thank you. No, 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 it's not a date. He thinks it's a date. He got it. It is not a date. I wanted to go get my license and this man wanted to do it at the same time. Okay. And he brought food with his presumptuous self and I'm going to eat because you brought the food. But we are not on a date. All right. You are mad I work with who came to the DMV same time as me. <laughs> I like that you're still going to eat the food. I support uh, that. Absolutely. And I've been waiting at the DMV all day. Of course I'm going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our last game is, are you a terrible parent? Your 14-year-old won't stop texting. In order to make them averse to texting all the time, whenever they do it, you murmur just loud enough for them to hear, click clack clickety clack oh that's oppression no until it's so annoying they throw their phone at you are you a terrible parent yes i'm oppressive (laughs) yes 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 my best friend dave every time i'm eating he does this Mm -hmm. (laughs) every single time and i hate it with all my heart that is the worst why why are you oppressing the baby why they can't text (laughs) what's the problem like let them get food no 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 no. first of all mm -mm. 
Yeah, definitely a terrible, definitely a terrible. Now, <laughs> now your child got all kind of trauma. Now this child is going to be 27 trying to figure out why they respond to texts in the way that they do. They get anxious. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't like to text. They're going to be getting cursed out by some significant other about why they never respond to their texts. they be like, I've been through some things. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, bad parents. <laughs> I have to say, I appreciate your decisiveness throughout this game of hypotheticals. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> other guests have sort of, you know, not known, asked more questions. You like knew immediately. And I really mm-hmm. respect it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people follow you and find out more about everything that you're up to and writing about? Everywhere on social media is Miss Olurin, M-S-O-L-U-R-I-N. Follow me. And there's lots of good cat content as well. <laughs> he is literally next to me being a talker. <laughs> Thank you so much. Just between us, it's time for topics. X, 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 baby. Baby. Okay, so Benifer's just a way in, but we did <laughs> want to say why do we care about celebrity relationships? First of all, I fell down a rabbit hole. Of who? Conspiracy. Ooh. Regarding Jennifer Lopez. Tell me everything. <laughs> well, first of all, I knew that Ashanti sang most of her songs. Wait, what? Ashanti, okay, so if you'll recall Ashanti, an incredible R&B singer uh, who had hits like Foolish and Rock With With Me. You don't like Ashanti, Melissa? Melissa's shaking her head at Ashanti. First of all, how dare you? Okay, so Ashanti, basically like, she is singing most of J-Lo's songs. There's also a musician, there's also a singer named Natasha Ramos, who is a behind the scenes sound alike of J-Lo who does most of J-Lo's music. There's also like I went down a rabbit hole. Also, okay, there were tons. So basically J-Lo exists because Tommy Mottola was mad at Mariah Carey. So here we go. Tommy Mottola and Mariah Carey were married. They got divorced. Mariah Carey was like a huge superstar. Tommy Mottola was like, okay, I need to find someone new to fuck with Mariah Carey and and be like good, uh, as good as Mariah Carey and compete with her. He finds J-Lo. He's like, she's an an amazing dancer. He's like, great. We're going to make J-Lo a superstar. So Mariah Carey started doing songs with Ja Rule. And then Tommy Mottola would be like, okay, well now J-Lo has to do a song with Ja Rule. But like, J-Lo can't sing. So they had... So they had all these people competing and they would like steal songs and lyrics and they would steal um, samples from Mariah Carey and all this stuff. And J-Lo is an incredibly talented performer. That's the thing. She has the charisma. She She's an incredible dancer. She's has, like a really good performer. But like most of her music is sung by other people. Justice for Ashanti. Anyway, there's tons of videos about it. The point is, I I don't have, I like J-Lo. I don't have any problem with her. She is not truly singing. Also, she does say the N-word in I'm Real, which makes sense when you realize the person singing is Ashanti. Okay, anyway, so now she's back together with Ben Affleck. I enjoy that. One, because it, it makes me think like, you know, in 2002 when they were together, the only reason it didn't work out was because there was so much media attention on them and they were so young. Is that true? They said that they canceled their wedding because there was too much media frenzy and they broke up. Oh, wow. So I think that now they've both older, both matured, you know, like, and maybe they were meant to be together all along. Yeah, I mean, I just love celebrity relationships because they make me feel better about my own life. 
Um, <laughs> and they like it, it. It humanizes them. I also like a big thing, like having been left by my fiance. A big thing is always like, oh, but like also all of the. It's ne- like looking to celebrity proves that like that's never a reflection of the person that was left. Like no. the most incredible people are cheated on and left and correct divorced and like you know. And so I think it's like this way of humanizing them and and seeing like oh wait so they can go through this and then go through that and then also be okay and then find love again (laughs) how many times was ariana grande engaged before she like found her husband once i think a couple times oh really and like i mean not i i don't know i'm i love ariana grande's music i don't know that much about her I feel like it does show you like that life is long and complicated, right? So because they're celebrities, we've known them for so long, known, mm-hmm. quote unquote. So like we've seen JLo like through into her 50s. And like, so we've seen like the public persona of like who she's been with. And everyone was like, she's going to get married to A-Rod. Like, and then boom, out of nowhere, Benefer's back. Yeah. It gives you a perspective. It gives you perspective. It also reminds you that there's always another person. <laughs> like right. it's very rare that like it, it it's not like A-Rod and her relationship exploded and then she's just now going to be single until she uh-huh. dies. Like it's always like, "Oh, who's around the corner? Ben Affleck's around the corner. Exciting." <laughs> like, she even talked shit on his tattoo. Remember when he got that big Phoenix tattoo on his back and there's yeah. like interviews of her being like, "It's not good." <laughs> so and just that like these people that even are in these like like the jason sudeikis olivia wilde of it all has Mm -hmm. been a really interesting thing where like so he's you know he's got this hit show that's like unbelievable i think one of the best things he's ever done but then his his like fiance leaves him for a much younger man (laughs) i don't know why they split up but i i'm I'm like her and Harry Styles is so surprising. Oh, it's shocking. But it's just this reminder of like these shocking things happen to these celebrities. Like nobody's safe. So you feel like you feel like, okay, so like if if I'm watching anything could happen to these people, then anything could happen to me. Well, I already then, feel like anything right. could happen to me. Right. And then it's like a reminder of like I'm not special. Anything could happen to anybody. Yes. That's how I feel. But I also do that with people in real life, which I think you do too, where you're mm-hmm. like always fascinated when someone is like with someone and then they get divorced and then they get back together and then they like fight. You're always like very interested in who's getting divorced. I will say that. Oh, yeah. But it's also this thing of like, I think it's like a really fun way to play with fantasy, right? Because like, what the fuck do JLo and Ben Affleck talk about? I, you know, I don't know. I knew, I think I knew that they were like, friends the whole time like I think they were your main friends but just trying to figure out like what is that relationship like what draws them together like what is it like like how often are they just like on the couch watching tv like why are they compatible yeah like why are these certain people compatible what does it look like when they go to somebody else and then they write songs about that like it's all so messy and fun and I love it (laughs) yeah I saw a, a fun tiktok that was like Taylor Swift knows exactly how to fuck with her specific exes based on their astrological signs. And so it'll be like, Calvin Harris is a Leo. He needs to be the center of attention. He needs to take credit for everything. And so what did she do? She came out and said that she wrote one of his biggest hits. <laughs> or that it's like, John Mayer is like a, a something rising. And so he needs everyone to love him. And so that's the one song that she's put out where she's been like, no, no, we're not going to let you make you guess at who this is about. This is has his first name in it. Like, and I was like, that is so funny. And also just so like, 
you're like, yeah, like that, like you, I don't know. It feels like you're a part of a game, even though I know it's their real lives. I think we like tend to like superhero celebrities and then the relationships are the things that like remind us that they're just regular people in a lot of ways. (laughs) Melissa, you want to come on in and share your thoughts and potential conspiracy theories? What do we, what do we rate this episode? I, okay. Can I say something? Okay. No, you can't. You can't say a thing on your own podcast, and I won't allow it. It's okay, Gabby. You can say something. <laughs> well, it's an it's a tie. Earlier in this podcast, I tough loved Allison, and I just want to say that I stand by that Allison is a creative force, and that I don't like hearing her talk about herself. In a, in a way, because I find it frustrating because I think she does have a lot of ideas. But I don't want, I don't want you to feel unheard because you kept saying you didn't feel heard. And so I want you to know that I do hear you and I respectfully disagree. <laughs> okay. But this is a conversation we've gone in circles around a ton of times because we have different approaches to art. But I just want to say that for the record, I believe Allison is an ideas powerhouse and I and you will not convince me otherwise. And so I'd like to rate this 11 out of 10. We are very different people with different points of view. And isn't that why you're here listening to this show? Um, thank you. Uh, look, I think the fact that I feel like I am currently out of ideas right now, I don't take to mean that I will be out of ideas okay. forever or that it means I don't have any ideas or that I'm a boring okay. person. I think maybe you extrapolated some of that from what and I was saying. And then I got angry. I like invented what you were yeah. saying and then I got angry at how dare someone say that to you, but nobody was saying that. But nobody <laughs> was really saying it. Um. <laughs> I'm fighting myself to defend you from... Yeah, I was just saying in this current moment... Yeah. I'm having trouble coming up with TikTok and Twitter content. I know, and content. I got upset. That to me, that to me doesn't mean that I am a garbage okay. person. I didn't take, I didn't take those steps that I think you thought maybe okay, I was. Okay, I got mad. I was like, "How dare you talk bad about yourself to to you?" I, it's okay. Um, I, but to me, it's also right. It's you saying that that's me talking badly about myself, but that's implying that there's like there that me not currently feeling like I have ideas is but bad. Whereas like I'm trying to look at it. It's frustrating, but I'm trying to look at it as like, you know, m- maybe it's just that right now I'm, I don't have that many okay. ideas and that doesn't, that doesn't need to mean that other, that much more yeah. than that, if that I'm makes sorry. sense. I'm a fix it person. I get very heated. It's okay. <laughs> um, I will rate this 74 out of 72 second chance Benefers. Aww. Why do we love it? Why do we care? Melissa I'll rate it 10 out of 10 on air apologies and forgiveness (laughs) all in one episode I canceled and then re and then uncanceled myself (laughs) or just like you know if you feel like you want to like talk about what might be going on for you internally I'm here for you got it (laughs) (laughs) thank you to Olayami Oloran for being our guest Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa DeMonts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam 
or on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin on Instagram, at Gabby Road on Instagram, and at she is not Melissa on Instagram. Okay, bye! Forever! Dog!